0: Hi and welcome to Fast Talk Femme with Dee, Dee Berry and Julie Young. In this episode, we will discuss safety and professional cycling. Safety in World Tour bicycle races is an ongoing concern. It seems that every time there's a major incident, there's a cry for changes and improved measures, but then it's quickly forgotten before anything gets done. Formula One race car driving had similar issues for many years as racing and cars became faster and faster. But after the death of Brazilian Formula One champion Ayrton Senna in 1994, the stakeholders finally banded together and changed policies to improve safety measures. There's no doubt that cycling needs a similar push to improve safety measures. In June, at the Tour of Switzerland, there were pre-race complaints over the proximity of a dangerous technical descent to the finish line on one of the stages. After many complaints, nothing was done about it. During the stage, Swiss professional cyclist Gino Mater crashed and died on this descent. A decade ago, a similar incident happened in the Giro d'Italia when Wouter Weyland crashed and died on a high-speed descent. We accept death as part of the sport, would it and shouldn't be. One week prior to Gino's accident, the Tour Feminine de Pyrenees was abandoned by the women's peloton after two stages because of safety concerns. Racers and team staff reported oncoming traffic during the race, as well as parked cars on the course that were impeding progress. Ashley Molman-Pascio was leading the Tour Feminine de Pyrenees when the final stage was canceled. With a high level of experience and respect in the peloton, she and others stepped in and voiced concerns about safety. These racers were subsequently criticized by the race organizer. And finally, the UCI and CPA, the Professional Cyclist Union representative, Adam Hansen, stepped in and canceled the final stage as they were not able to ensure the road conditions would be safe. Adam is a former UCI Pro Tour cyclist who has won stages at the Giro d'Italia in the Vuelta a España and completed 26 grand tours. He was elected as the president of the CPA in March 2023 and has been working hard at improving safety. In this episode, we'll get Ashley and Adam's perspective on safety in the Pro Tour and their thoughts on what needs to change to make the racing safer
1: going forward.
0: Ashley and Adam, thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate
0: it. Yeah, thanks, Phoebe. Great to uh, be back. Hi, listeners. We're so excited that you're here to check out Fast Talk Femme, a new podcast series that's all about the female endurance athlete. Here at Fast Talk Labs, we pride ourselves on being the pioneers of information and education in the endurance sports world for both athletes and coaches. If you like what you hear today, check out more at FastTalkLabs.com. We barely scratched the surface in terms of the highlights of your cycling career in our intro. So I wanted to hear from you on what the highlights of your pro cycling career were and what your transition was like out of pro cycling.
1: Well, I think for me personally, it was uh, my two stage wins in the the Grand Tours. That was pretty personally nice for me. Riding in such good teams, you know, HTC, that was huge. One of the most successful teams ever. And with Lotto also, um, with Andre Greifel, so many wins. But oddly, the the strangest thing is, uh, and it, it took me a long time to appreciate it, was every time a race starts, you go on the podium, you sign on, they would never speak about anything except for my 20 grand tours in a row. And sometimes I was standing on the podium thinking, you know, I, I was national champion. I won a stage in the Giro and the Velta. Didn't talk about it. And I didn't realize how unique this was because everyone wins stages. I don't want to say everyone wins stages in the Giro, but every day someone wins and And it made me realize, okay, the 20 grand tours in a row was something very unique. And, and I started to appreciate it a lot more afterwards. So to me, that was, that has to be the biggest highlight of my career. There's just the consistency always being selected staying healthy. I think this is a very, very difficult task in um, cycling.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Tell us what you've been up to since you retired from pro cycling.
1: Been very busy. uh, So a number of things. Um, I started to get into triathlons and then that was sort of overpowered with uh, work. And now I am uh, become president of the CPA, which is the of the riders union. And this has been a, a lot of work that's sort of taken over my life at the moment.
0: What was your motivation and your goals in leading the CPA?
1: You know, I was always part of the CPA a little before, and I just saw how difficult they have it. And to me, it was really, I thought of an impossible job to do. And because I showed interest before, they asked me to run for president. And I actually said no at the start, because normally when you have a union, it's the employees versus employers. And it's its pretty simple. I don't want to say it's simple, but it's Simple. Where in cycling, we have the, the the employees being the riders, the employers being the teams, but then we've also got the the UCI which governs the rules, and then we've got the race organizers too. So every time you negotiate, not negotiating with one body, you're negotiating with four different stakeholders. And this is this is just a nightmare. And knowing this beforehand for me it was like this is it's almost an impossible task. And I really enjoyed retired life. It was simple, it was relaxing. <laughs> I had a lot of spare time. And I, I sort of looked into the role and I thought, okay, it would be a good challenge for me. And the riders definitely need it. And what I saw with me being part of the CPA before, the biggest problem with the riders being part of the CPA is the young riders don't care. They've just got the contracts, they've just got their new bikes, they just want to race, they want to focus all their time there. And it's not until the older riders where they've been in the system for 10 years, they've had enough, they want to stand up, they want to be more involved, and the small time they put in, those changes do not affect them, it affects the new generation by the time it gets implemented. And it's just a reoccurring that whatever rider puts his hand up doesn't really feel the effect of, of, of the work he's done. And I, I know that, you know, the riders definitely need to be helped. It's getting worse and worse. And I thought it'd be a good challenge for me. And and I think the, the, probably the number one driving force is I still got a lot of friends in the peloton. So a lot of them are young, uh, younger than me. And I just wanted to help these guys out.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. For our listeners, can you explain the role and like the scope of responsibility that the CPA has in cycling? Like, does it represent just road cyclists or are all the UCI disciplines represented? And what is that scope?
1: So at the moment, it's just road cycling, and we are looking into virtual cycling and also gravel racing. And the reason why we're looking into these other sports is because we want to get sort of ahead of the ball. And with road cycling, you have to be a professional athlete. And to be a professional athlete, you have to have a contract in place that's like the, the joint agreement. And the joint agreement is a, a agreement between the teams and the riders, so the, the, the teams and the CPA that we agree on a safe working condition contract. And then once we agree on that, we give it to the UCI. And just today we approved it for next year. So um, that's very big news for us. So it's been changed quite a lot. And the reason why I say this is because you can be in a continental team with a contract that's the same as a joint agreement, which means you get paid a certain amount and you follow all the um, regulations of the UCI and your class is professional, even while you do not race in the professional category. So, it is automatically all the World Tour riders, the Pro Tour riders, and any Continental rider that has a contract that's replicated like the Joint Agreement, and also the World Tour Women's. That's who's under the CPA.
0: Adam, it's super helpful to better understand the CPA's role within the greater professional cycling structure. Thank you for explaining that. Ashley, you joined us on Fast Talk Fem earlier this summer. And you've competed in a number of events since then. But I wanted to circle back to one event in particular, the Tour Feminine du Pyrénées. You had a great start to the race and you were leading the race and the final stage was subsequently canceled. I'd like to get your perspective on what led to the safety concerns and, and why that final race was canceled.
2: Yeah, so I mean, essentially, we were having real issues during the race uh, where, you know, just traffic control I was really below um standard or below what what we're used to um so yeah just cars driving toward us on the course and then in particular I suppose on the first stage in the final it was particularly dangerous where you know we just about to launch a sprint coming around a corner and there was a car literally driving uh, towards us. Like, to be honest, this is where sometimes as a rider, I don't really like to opt to be too involved in, in safety when it comes to actual racing because I'm racing to win. So in that kind of situation, I have to actually be honest. Like, yeah, I saw the obstacles coming, but it's not like I thought much of it. I was just 100% focused on racing. But when that obviously leads to to an incident that, you know, causes harm, of course, we don't want that to happen. So... Yeah, in that moment, I was just focused on, on racing and, and going for the sprint. And I didn't necessarily in, in that moment feel in huge danger. But when you look back and then during the course of, of the next stage, we were all hypersensitive, obviously, to what was happening for the next stage. They promised us because we had already so we had already neutralized the stage um, ourselves as riders um, and team managers during the course of, the, of that first stage. So yeah, essentially, what it boils down to is that the race organisation they were really doing their their best, and this is where sometimes it's hard to to be super harsh on it because they're doing their best to create good opportunities for women cycling. But in that particular instance, they had over spent too much on TV exposure, and in that way, um, not being able to invest properly in safety. So in that exact instance of the Twitter ponies, I was very clear in saying I don't want to. Dash down the race organizers who are trying their best to do the best for us. But at the end of the day, there needs to be a priority. You know, there has to be a list of priorities and safety has to come before TV exposure um, because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, our lives and our livelihood are more important than being on, on live television coverage. So it just seems that the priorities were just in the wrong order uh, for that particular race. But it's quite difficult in when you're in that instance because, you know you it's quite difficult to come to a consensus uh, within the peloton what to do um because you know everybody's got different agendas you know as world tour teams that we're, where we generally need to take the lead and actually we're not world tour ag insurance so we're a continental team but that's often where you see the teams taking the lead is in the world tour because they they're more secure so that's kind of part of the issue when you have continental teams or smaller club teams they're just looking at every opportunity to get exposure or to get results or to get points. So it's more difficult for them to find, you know, that that priority order. That's where the World Tour teams really need to take the lead because they're secure. You know, they've, they've got a lot of things in place, uh, which allows them to take those decisions more rationally, if that makes sense. But, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, there's always a safety representative at each race. So that's from the CPA. So the CPA always nominates a rider to be in charge of safety. As I said to you, I don't put my name forward for for this kind of position at all because I find it really difficult to do being a race winner when you're racing for results, you know, to kind of find that line because it's a bit like pushing through the pain barrier. I mean, that's what we just do day in, day out. So finding the line between, you know, just, you know, racing to win and looking. I don't want to be looking or focusing too much on safety, if that makes sense in the moment. So I'm never one of those riders, but there is always a rider um, who is in charge. And if any of us in the peloton are feeling unsafe or uneasy, then we know beforehand who this rider is. So you would have to go to that rider. or well, that's generally how we deal with the situation and say, hey, I'm not happy with the situation. What do you think we should do? And then it often would be a bit of communication between you know that particular rider and um, some of the team cars. And then you know, it's essentially, in the case of the Tour of Pyrénées as a peloton, we decided to stop. So the rider representative then got everyone in agreement to, okay, we're stopping. Then the race comes, organizer obviously comes on, <laughs> to the fore. You nominate a couple of, of riders from teams to go and have a conversation, a couple of DSs uh, maybe join in. And then after the race, then, of course, the CPA is brought into the equation, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I was curious as to the race organizers' response, because I heard varying reports, but it almost sounded like there was some level of bullying from the race organizers when the protest happened and the Peloton stopped.
2: Yeah, it was quite difficult because in this particular instance, there was a little bit of a conflict of interest, to be totally honest, in that Marion Clinet was one of the people involved in the race organization, yet she was also very heavily involved in the CPA. And so I, I do find, like, I, I really respect uh, Marion. She's done a lot of great work the CPA. I think she has subsequently stepped away, but she was struggling to put a neutral cap on in this instance in particular. And I think even in her case, it was partly her fault to be pushing so heavily for TV exposure. It was like she was really trying to make a point around, you know, what women's cycling needs and trying to do the best for women's cycling in terms of, of bringing it good exposure. But it was still a small race. You know, it's not a world tour race. It's not a highly ranked race. So I just feel like, you know, the priorities weren't 100 percent in order. And that's where safety yeah was unfortunately neglected. So at the end of the day, in this particular case, it went to the most extreme situation where the UCI stepped in and forced them to cancel the race. And I don't think the race is going to happen again. So this is always the situation that we're dealing with is that at what point do you become super hard, super clear, and then, unfortunately, that race might not exist anymore, but maybe it shouldn't exist if they can't prioritize what's most important, and that's safety I think at the end of the day, I'm happy that the UCI made the call. And yeah, I suppose the right call was to cancel the race and to make a very clear message. But I I won't be surprised if the race doesn't exist next year, because obviously the ramifications for them were pretty huge.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is too bad if the race gets canceled going forward. But I mean, in my mind, safety should come first in any event. I agree. So have you faced situations like this in other events? I mean, it's always a bit of an issue, to be honest, like,
2: around safety and how far we take things. I mean, in every race we have traffic obstacles or islands or road furniture. And there's always sometimes some debates around what's safe and what's not safe. As I said, like I find this sometimes quite difficult to find the line because as a, as a racer, we, we're we going above and, and beyond, we're pushing ourselves. It's about taking risk, but it's calculated risk. So, yeah, sometimes I feel like it is quite difficult nowadays to find the balance, you know, where race organizers are sometimes organizing sprints that are just silly. Like, why are we coming into from a three lane road into one lane road in the last 500 meters? I don't know. It's just an example. So but then at the same time, like it's not totally foreign. Like these are things that we that we are having to do (laughs) through different races. So I don't know. Maybe I'm actually not the best person to talk to about this because I find it, it quite difficult to be totally sort of neutral about these things. Like I'm a bike racer. If I'm told to race something, like I'm going to go about it in the best way possible. And I'm pretty skilled in the peloton. So for me, like, you know, I know what it takes to, to be in the front at the right moment. Um, and, and usually I manage to execute that relatively safely. But the problem in women cycling often in general, and I suppose in men's cycling too, it's if you have these differing um, in skills levels, that's where things go wrong. And that's quite common in women cycling where, you know, you have talent that rises to the fore quite quickly. And so they don't really have as much experience in a big bunch or in your know, countries where road furniture are more common. Um, and so that's where we often see things going wrong because of the disparity in, in skills um, levels. But Generally speaking, I I don't really feel that I've really been uh, put hugely at danger in terms of the races that I've had to do. I do feel that the safety council, or whatever they call it now, by means of the CPA, and then these rider representatives who are nominated for each race, I I really do feel that I can trust that the right calls are being made.
0: Yeah. So you touched quite a bit on the dynamics between the riders, directors, and race organizers. But I guess I find myself, I was thinking about those who have skin in the games in terms of like monetary investment and then the bottom line return on investment. But I was just curious as to your thoughts on like the directors and the teams. Do they typically back the riders in these situations, like in canceling or curtailing the stages? Or are the directors and the teams pushing for the races to continue, for example, in in the Tour of Pyrenees? So for sure, we had 100% support from
2: Jolene de Hoer, who was our race director at the race and then from from the team in general. So they were very respectful of how we felt. I mean, Jolene is also, you know, not so long ago that she was racing in the peloton. So she still really
3: understands
2: what it's like to be racing and to be, um, you know, subjected to those kind
1: of conditions.
3: Adam, can you help us understand the complexities of making road cycling safer?
1: Before I ran for president, I asked what the writers want. If I was become president, what would you want me to do? And they said it's just things are getting out of control and safety. So when I was looking into this, I was thinking, okay, so to make a change, well, first look at the UCI regulations, which well, I, I call them regulations now, but before I, I thought there were rules. And everything's just a recommendation. So when you hear about the barriers in the, in the last kilometre of a race, it's only a recommendation. When you're talking about barriers with the legs sticking out where riders can hit them, it's also a recommendation. Organisers do not have to do this. They do not have to follow it. Everything that the UCI has put in place is simply a recommendation. And what I wanted to do first was I thought, okay, first we have to make someone accountable. And it's not to blame them, but if they're held accountable and something goes wrong, then maybe they'll work a bit better and we can have safer races. So I spoke to a few lawyers and I was really surprised with the answer. And they said the teams are accountable if something is wrong at a race.
3: Wow.
1: And I, and I was a bit confused. I was like, the teams? And he goes, yeah, because and, and I know this law is the employers must provide a safe working environment for the employees. And the riders are employed by the employers and employers send them to these races. So if anyone's accountable, it's the teams. And now when you're trying to improve the safety in in the races, it's hard to make the teams accountable and force them to fix safer courses. Because a lot of the teams are struggling to get the funds to have a cycling team. And when you talk to the organizers, a lot of them are struggling also. There's there's some organizers making good money. And when you're talking about, say, for barriers, so if you're looking at the barriers in Belgium, the plastic ones that they have everywhere, so just these barriers require four times the trucks to deliver them and store them and everything. It takes so much to set them up. They cost extra money. And the conditions of having these barriers, you can't have your sponsors on them because the the company wants to sponsor themselves on them. So just the cost factors a lot. And then on on the other side is you've got organizers that want to buy barriers, they don't want to build them because they're so afraid that the UCI will create a, a safe working barrier and say, okay, everyone must use these barriers and the organ- all organized must use these barriers. And so the organized sort of sitting on the fence, waiting if the UCI is going to make this. The UCI doesn't really want to do it because they don't want to say this is safe and something goes wrong. And the person that's accountable is the teams. And it's just a, it's a bit of a nightmare to try and get everyone in the same room and create a nice dialogue where we can just come to a nice agreement to make, you know, it's safer. What I try to do is say to the teams that, you know, we saw one rider this year crash in Amstel, hurt his wrist, and he was out for two months. And I don't know his figure on how much he gets paid, but he probably costs the team half a million euro every month he's just sitting at home. So this is a good incentive to sort of okay, come on teams. It's actually important for you. You lose money if your riders are at home not doing anything because they still get paid. So to negotiate with um, the teams and the UCI, it's difficult. And to add more complexity to that, you have the UCI that has these regulations, and then the commissaires at the races are volunteers, and they're not really part of the UCI. They're called UCI commissaires, but every decision they make, it's sort of the UCI can't overturn them because they're only volunteer commissaires. It's not a professional referee as, as such. So this is a, this is another dynamic that a lot of people um, miss out also. And it is difficult, but it's coming along. Um, a lot of things have changed and and things are, will be better, I should say, maybe in the next six to one year, improve a lot.
3: Well, it is interesting to hear you say that because the riders are the asset, you know, and you would think the teams would be strongly supporting the riders, but I understand there's other factors involved in terms of that return on investment.
1: Yeah, there's definitely um, other aspects. And and you would think that the teams would always be on the side of the riders, but they're not always in the side of the riders. And I'm not here to talk badly on the teams, but uh, unfortunately, um, some teams see riders as racehorses. Men's have more more guys at home, um, so if a rider is injured, it's like, ah, oh, it's okay, we got another one who can call someone else up. If you're not well, oh, there's someone else that's filling your spot. There's always reserves, and that's that's probably one of the biggest problems in cycling, and it's also in women's cycling too. There's not as many women in, in, in each team, but, you know, everyone gets treated the same, same mentality, where um, you have this aspect, and, and then on the other aspect, you know, in Tour of Pyrenees, for example, in this race, it wasn't the safest race uh, that was on, And then there was a voting if the race should continue or not, if the riders wanted to do it. And I forgot the numbers off the top of my head, but there's a high majority of riders that did not want to do it. And how we did the voting was one rider per team and they would discuss internally and that rider would vote on behalf of the riders in the team. So not the team's decision, the riders in that team. And then we had the voting for the teams and the team's majority wanted to race. So, you have this um, aspect where you have teams wanting the girls to race where the ladies did not want to race. They didn't feel it was safe. Where the rider is the one that sees everything. So, you know, why should the teams be making these choices?
3: I can't imagine that creates a great rapport, you know, and sense of trust between the riders and the teams when the teams aren't looking out for the best interest and in health and longevity of the rider.
1: Oh, of course. And I'm not saying it's acceptable. It's not acceptable, but I understand why it happens. You know, there were valuable points up for grab there. There were some teams in a very good position to get the points. Um, You have the sponsors on TV. This was a race on Eurosport. It had great coverage. So this was a huge bonus. So you can see that the team's interests were very different to some of the riders. But also having said that, there are some teams that were very, very nice to the riders.
3: Yeah. Well, it is also really interesting. It's like anything else, just understanding the behind the scenes factors and determining the decision making. Like just as you were talking about the barriers, that's so interesting. Like just things like that that from the outside we have no idea that's what's going on there. You know, I would say, Adam, like just Didi and I were chatting about this and and from our perspective, like when we were racing UCI, it doesn't seem like things have improved that much, but to your point, it's such a slow process. And I kind of imagine this is like the true definition of endurance is really continuing just to pick away at this. And I've heard you and other podcasts and, and the scope of work just seems absolutely endless. Like you don't have enough time in the day to kind of be dealing with all this. But at this point, how are you strategizing and prioritizing the changes that need to happen? Or, or do you feel like it's still a little bit like putting out fires as they come up?
1: Yeah, it's definitely um, putting out fires as they come up and it's never just a small fire. How my day happens when, you know, something like that happens or Pyrenees, basically as soon as it happens I just have to drop everything. doesn't matter where I am, I just really have to drop everything and I'm on my phone. If I'm not at the race, I'm on my phone and I'm I'm contacting just everyone around. For the Pyrenees, for example, one night I went to bed at 3 o'clock in the morning, 3.30, and I had to get up at 7 o'clock because well, I had an argument with the um, the organiser. They said one thing, I said another thing. So I rewatched the race from 1 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the morning on 1.5 speed and I was taking screenshots of all the cars that were coming on the road because I was ensured no cars came on the road. And I saw it when I was watching the race and I, and I wanted to find out all these images. And I was speaking to a different organizer that found a different route that was more safe for stage three. And we were discussing that until like 1130 at night. And this is super nice. This is someone that was not in the part of that, that race the organization and, and he was really trying to help me out he knew the roads there, knew the area he wasn't organized for a different race and he said this is a much safer option because on stage three the girls would go through a city and then after that do a climb and then down the climb and through a city again and what we were afraid is there weren't enough motorbikes so then you'd have groups everywhere and when you have groups everywhere that's when you need motorbikes on the front and the back of the groups to get the cars off the road and if there was multiple groups then we would i was pretty sure in this situation that some ladies were not protected by motorbikes and getting all this information. And in the end, you know, I had to, I I really wanted, part of me is like, yeah, you had the organiser, like, you don't understand how much work and effort has gone into these races. and, And to me it's like, well, okay, even if I don't, in my head it's like, I would feel so guilty if I accepted that as a reason for a race to go on and a car hits a lady the next day. And I had the chance to do something and the chances of a car hitting someone is small, but if it happened and, and we saw on stage one, there were cars in the last uh, one kilometer of this race. If it did happen, yeah, I would feel, I would feel terrible. If I, if I had some power to stop that from happening, I don't think I could um, live with myself because I was like, okay, it's true. You know, I'm not sure something could happen and they say that they could improve things and, so on this side, it can be, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit difficult. Also, when you know the organisers, <laughs> your friends one day and the next time, <laughs> they're not so happy with me. But the good thing is that they understand the cause and that, that's that's definitely um, a positive thing.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think this is similar to being an athlete. Oftentimes, we can really fixate on what we need to do better, but it's also important to celebrate the successes. So, like at this point, what are the progress pieces that you feel you've made?
1: First thing is just more understanding how how races are organised. Um, I think this is a very important aspect because what I found out is like they'll do a briefing to the motorbike riders on you know how to protect the peloton. And I think a lot of them aren't paying attention and, and it's more going to the races and, and seeing how this works. For me to have a better understanding, this has helped quite a lot. What I've noticed is me being more transparent on social media has helped quite a lot to get public opinion behind me and organisers kind of, I don't want to say they fear me a little, but it's they do fear me a little and this has kind of helped quite a lot. And no organiser wants something written badly about their race and I'll never ever say this is a bad race i'll just highlight what happened in the race and that's what they do not want other thing that's been working on the side that's been really helpful is uh, i don't know if you've heard of a program called safer and safer was basically um, established before i became president but they were very secretive of it. I don't, I, I, this part, I'm, I'm not sure why. And once they saw that I was very, I really wanted to work on the safety, they, they included me into this program, which is good, and the, the CPA is included. So what this is, is it's part of the, the, the organisers of the teams, the, the organisers, the UCI and the CPA. And we have meetings every uh, Thursdays, and we speak an hour and a half together on how we can um, improve things to make races safe. So next week, we have a Tour of Luxembourg and all of us will be going to Tour of Luxembourg and we will be doing an audit on the race. So first up, they've sent us all the um, everything, the, the, the schedules, the checklist, um, how they're preparing the race, where the barriers will be, where are the danger zones, which islands will be protected, where the marshals will be standing, how the motorbikes will be working. We get all this information, we assess it, then we'll do our own before the race and we'll see what we find and what we don't find. And then we talk to all the volunteers or the staff. We see if they're overworked, what experience they have, how do they do the safety control, when the safety car goes in front of the bunch. Um, we'll do a full assessment of the race, and it's not to see if Tour Luxembourg is safe race. It's for more for the safer organisation to learn how organisers do it. And we have ASOs coming with us. We have. RSC is coming with us and, you know, they'll have value input also. We've got Scott Sutherland coming with us who does a lot of races in Flanders and Kittle Evans race in Australia and Warsaw. So we've got a lot of uh, valuable people. And basically, we're, we're trying to create a standardization for all races and a checklist and um, try and make things more standard for the athletes. And this will also include in the future of standard signage and where the marshals should stand and should they have whistles. So, for example, should a marshal stand in front of a car that's parked on the road or should he stand 40 metres in front of the car to give more warning to the riders and create a more standardization where all races follow the standard and make it safer for the riders.
3: It's just such a huge investment of time just listening to this like every Thursday and being on this and meeting and so thoughtful in terms of all the details. And I hope all the writers understand what's going on behind the scenes to help them improve the safety of their workplace.
1: I'm sure they don't, but that's okay. That's Um, okay. That's okay. You know, they've got a job to do, and and their job is not to make sure the regulations are are put in place. I think um, that's sort of our job to make sure that's happening. And also, on one side, you know, I don't want them to think about it. It's the last thing they should think about. They should focus on themselves and racing and doing their best. Cycling is a sport that takes over your whole life, it's not something you just do on the weekend and train three or four times a week. And these athletes work, you know, hard enough to worry about more things than they have to.
3: Well, I think they're fortunate to have a stronger voice, you know, looking out for them. Because I think, again, when Didi and I were racing, I think everyone thought about this, but it it never really happened. So it's great to see it materializing. One last question for you. Um, What are your priorities moving forward?
1: I'd like the the pay to be a lot better for the riders. I like uh, TV revenue to come to the riders. I think this is the major thing. We made the agreement on the joint agreement uh, today. So what that means is the insurance has really improved with the riders. A lot of riders didn't have very, very good insurance. And it's it's terrible to say this, but some, some riders have been racing in Canada, China, Australia with no insurance. I shouldn't say no insurance, but no real insurance. So they had more travel insurance, not dangerous sports insurance, where these insurance companies would not have covered them if something had gone wrong. So we've improved this in the joint agreement. And the joint agreement has already existed for the men's and we're, we're pushing to have it for the women's too because they have to have it. They should and they have to have it. And I already spoke to a lot of the women at paris Bay asking for the agents. This is also like how I like to work in some senses. When I'm you know negotiating with the teams with the joint agreement, I don't want to talk to the riders because I know the riders don't know much about their contracts. So I, I asked the riders, if you have an agent, give me an agent and I'll talk to them. And the agents, they know more about the riders' contracts than the riders do. I spoke to three agents from the females and much more from the men's and I asked okay what are you happy with the contract what are you not and then with one of the um, agents from the women's team actually he found all these holes in the insurances uh, made me more aware of it and then I became a little insurance expert yeah so the number one goal there was improving the insurances for the riders also if they have serious accidents and in the sense of um, if they still get paid and how long for and how it's been distributed to them, better uh, international insurance, better life insurance. So this has been improved quite a lot. The minimum wage will be going up next year for the men's, and we hope to match the the women's to the men's uh, new minimum wage in the future and also make sure that the women's have a joint agreement because some of the contracts that the women's have with the teams is is terrible. And we've been pushing to have a second category with the women's and professional because they need this but the UCI is um, already starting this, so this is great. And TV revenue is yeah definitely number one. I think um, the riders give their whole life to the sport and they should um, deserve more of the cake also.
3: With the riders and health insurance, I know when Dee and I were racing, we were typically independent contractors with the teams and covered our own health care. Is that how it is now or is it our riders, employees of the teams and the teams are covering healthcare?
1: It's mixed quite a lot. So Riders prefer to be independent contractors, and today a lot of the teams are preferring them to be employees. And cycling is <laughs> its a nightmare for insurance companies because what, what usually happens is you have a team and the team will give the athlete insurance everywhere except for the home residence because normally the everyone has insurance in the home residence just through the health system that they have. Obviously, in America, that's a totally different situation. And in other parts of Europe, you have some countries that are better than the others. So for the teams to to work out this insurance is very problematic because they just can't get the one package for everyone. And then also when they're talking about traveling, um, not all riders go to Canada. So um, this is a bit problematic. And then with the independent contractors, their insurance plan, that it's more up to the riders. But it's the team, they're responsible that the riders have this. So that's part of the joint agreement also. And this gets complicated also with the pension, because if you're an independent contractor by the joint agreement, you must, and UCI, you have to create your own pension plan too. This is also different in every country. And as you know, a team has sometimes, I was in a team once with 17 different nationalities. So it's a very problematic for them to work it out for all the different athletes. But... It is always better to be an employee. Yes, you might get paid a little bit less, but overall, it is better in terms of your pension and also your um, insurances.
0: Adam, it sounds like you're really doing a great job of moving everything forward in a positive direction. Just even getting all these issues out on the table and talking about them more publicly and trying to bring all the stakeholders together is an important first step. Yeah, I applaud you for that. It's, it's amazing and it, it's not an easy undertaking. There was a couple of things that you brought up earlier in the discussion, specifically around the UCI and the UCI making recommendations rather than mandates or rules around safety of the courses at the events. And then also around the pro cycling teams, not necessarily taking interest in protecting their assets, the riders, Do you feel like the safer, safe road cycling group and this initiative will move everything in the right direction in that regard? Because I feel like that could be a real barrier going forward to implementing the changes that you're trying to make if that culture doesn't change and the rules don't change.
1: Yeah, so my idea with SAFER is that the people in SAFER at the moment, I think they are thinking in a good manner. And we're all agreeing on everything at the moment, so that's very good. And I think it's very difficult for like myself at the moment. I've been interviewing the riders, seeing what they want in terms of regulations. And what I want to do is have a bit of a handbook done. And then once that's done, I give it back to the riders. They go through and they say, "Yes, that's that's what we want. We want marshals not standing in front of the car, but forty meters in front of a car with a whistle." And once I have all that. The plan is to go to UCI and say, well, that's what the riders want, you implement it, and then um, the organisers follow it. The benefit with SAFER is that if I can present that to SAFER and teams agree and they say yes, because a lot of safety things can be improved without extra cost, just by Marshall standing in a different area. Yes, padding, barriers cost more, but there's a lot of things. Also, one rider gave me one example is when a motorbike has to go back through the peloton, instead of just going off the road or if they can't get off the road, instead of stopping and whistling, drive 25 kilometers an hour and then let the bunch slowly go past the riders. Just little things like this, the education of the motorbikes can make a huge difference. And once I have all this material um, complete and the riders checked it off and we have the Safe Park group, if we have good dialogue within each other as we do now, and you have the organizers agree and you have, because it's not just one organizer in there, we've got many organizers in there and we've got many of the teams in there involved and we've got the CPA and we've got commissaires also in the group and then we've got the UCI too. And if it all makes sense and everyone's on board, there's no reason why the UCI should not implement these things. And I do believe this new body could make a big difference. I like this this new Safer thing at the moment. We'll see how it goes with Luxembourg. Also, one thing I didn't say about Luxembourg is when we go there, they also, this was not my idea, but that was someone else's idea, is that we order teams. So they're actually going to be looking into um, Israel put the hand up and also, because this is all testing at the moment, Israel put the hand up and also Jumbo. So when we're at Luxembourg, we'll also see how the teams work. And this is how much detail we're going. We'll see what time the mechanics finish working on the bikes, if it's too late, if the transfer is too long, if they get enough rest, if the bikes are done, worked on a proper way, if the if any of the staff members are overworked and how the sports directors drive in the convoy. If if, if there's a crash, do they swing over on the left side and take another ride or do they stay and, and wait until the, the doctor car goes through and more see sports director behaviour, team behaviour, And it looks like, in my opinion, at the moment, it looks like it's going in a very good direction. And I think the power of all the other stakeholders behind it can make a difference in the future.
0: Yeah, I think that cooperation is going to be really key. So statistics are showing that Pelotons are racing at higher speeds with each generation. And although there's no statistics available publicly around this, it seems like there are worse crashes. Some of that may have to do with equipment. But I was also kind of thinking... You know, back to Wouter Whalen's accident in the Giro d'Italia. I forget what year it was, but it was about 10 years ago. And then Gino Madar's death in the Tour of Switzerland this year. And it made me curious as to whether the UCI or the CPA has discussed measures to slow down the peloton, particularly on dangerous descents or pinch points on the courses.
1: Yeah, good point. So um, if you look at Aremberg, for example, in Parachute Bay, it's a nightmare of a cobble section. And for those listening that's never done it, it's like the world championship sprint line is at the start. You are racing into for pole position coming into this cobble section at 50 to 60 kilometres an hour and you don't ride it. You sort of hold the momentum through it. And I think this year was crazy. I even had sports directors ask me, like, what's going on? Is this just to see broken bones and broken bikes and, there's just so many crashes. And what we're actually discussing for these, these dangerous points, as you, as you said before, is how about instead of going straight onto it, we turn a right, do a U-turn, 180 corner, come back, take another right, and then you sort of enter it you know, through a corner, not at 55 kilometers an hour, but maybe at 35 kilometers an hour. And it's not the, the best thing for the riders, but, you know, you still have these special historical parts in the race, still be involved in the race, but you're, you're reducing the peloton speed by 20 kilometres an hour, which could do quite a lot. So we are thinking about these things. It's a bit harder for, for the descents, especially in the recent one. You know, even if we do everything on our on our side in the form of educating the riders, the organisers doing everything, making sure the road's safe and protection everywhere, we do have to step up the game with education to the riders. When I was at the Twitter France, there was some dangerous descents they were talking about, and I went to them, I did them, I videoed them so the riders could see it. And every time I, I posted it online to the riders, I would say, just remember, cycling is a dangerous sport. It's also in your hands. And I think this is a something that's sort of forgotten within the riders where it's just, you know, they, they forget that they have a, even i didn't even know this when i was racing but you have a bit of stylofoam on your head and that's it you have no protection at all just lycra and and the fastest i went was 121 kilometers an hour and guys were going much faster than me on the same descent and it's it is a little bit mental in a way it's so you know i think riders have to be informed better and and realize that there is life after cycling and just think twice
0: Probably especially the young riders who don't have the experience, the crashing experience to draw on yet. (laughs) You know, I think that when you've been around a long time like you were, Adam, and you see the possibilities and and you start to take more precaution. But the peloton is getting younger and younger. and, And yeah, probably some of those young riders do need a little bit more education around the risks that they're
1: taking. It's exactly what you said. We spoke about this also in the sense where the peloton is younger and you have younger guys doing these bigger races. And these bigger races are the ones with the mountain downhills, the huge mountain downhills, where I remember 15 years ago, if he had a 24-year-old rider, he was super young. But to be 24, he did seven years of racing in Belgium on the flat you know and that was technical and handling bike handling skills and learning bike handling skills and all that and now you've got 19 year olds there was a 19 year old the Giro this year and I think it was his second Giro like that just blew my mind where he's doing all these descents and he's just got no pro years experience and he's just racing downhill that's the other thing that people also forget when you look at Formula One drivers Formula One drivers do the same circuit every single year. They have a computer game version. They practice, they practice, they practice. In road cycling, we do descents that you've never seen before. You go, you race down a mountain, and you have no idea about the corners. You trust the rider in front of you. If he stops pedaling, you stop pedaling around the corner. If he pedals, you know it's a bit straight. You know, they take huge risk, and um, it just has to come back to education.
0: Yeah, Another issue that I see not necessarily being addressed properly is the safety of the bikes. You know, the the time trial bikes, for example, the way they handle in high winds, along with the super deep dish wheels can be an issue. And EOS saw two of their riders crash, two of their biggest assets, really. Egan Bernal and Chris Froome crash on their time trial bikes. But also, you know, there's this trend towards super narrow handlebars at the moment and brake hoods pushed in super far. And I see that across all levels of the sport on the road. I see it at the junior races in Canada and the U.S. I see it at the pro level. I think that affects handling, but it seems to me that currently speed trumps control at the moment. And if the bikes can't be handled properly and can't be controlled, in my opinion, they just shouldn't be raced. But are there any efforts... Being made right now to control the safety of the bikes.
1: Yeah, so when I was at the Giro, I, I surveyed the the riders on what they wanted as in brake levers, and I wanted them to have a bit of a voice before the UCI comes in. And quite a lot of them were against the narrow ones, and we had a few meetings discussing it. And the feedback that I get from rides a lot of a lot of crashes have happened from it, and the UCI doesn't see this; they just see the crashes, and they don't see exactly why. And what I'm trying to do is try and get a larger voice from the peloton that they do not want these type of brake levers coming in. So it's a bit of a win and, and, and I've been dealing with Michael Rogers at the at the UCI and there will be a, a rule put in place and I'm, I'm working with Mick with this. With, we're trying to work out how we can do this in a way where it can be implemented with the brake levers because... We were talking about all different ratios to have. And, and it's difficult because you can you now have these flared out handlebars off gravel style, but they're using on the road now. And you can still have your brake hood straight and then your drops are further out. And because of that, this would sort of break the uh, ratio that they wanted to use to try and steer riders away from bending the, the brake hoods in. But there should be something implemented this for next year. I completely agree with you. Time trial bikes, some of them unrideable. Like I always... Never enjoyed riding some of my time trial bikes. It was, you you had no control and speed, definitely trumped safety. This is one good thing about, I know a lot of people joke about the 6.8 kilogram rule on bikes, but when you do have this, you do see that manufacturers do not take risk on um, the actual uh, structure of the bike, but with these deep wheels, yeah, it is getting out of control.
0: Yeah, it's good that there's talk of assessment and potential measures being put in.
1: Are you a student athlete that's looking to up
3: your game? Look no further. Hi, this is coach and physiologist Ryan Kohler at Rocky Mountain
1: Devo, and I have over 20 years of experience working with junior athletes. I specialize in a physiology-based approach to training with a focus on finding improvements that can make the biggest impact on your end goal. I'd love to work with you, so check out more at rockymountaindevo.com. Ashley, I want to talk
0: about weather conditions and what's appropriate It's been really interesting to watch the differing and lack of consistent responses to weather conditions and races since I've been involved in the sport. And I know this is a challenging thing for organizers and directors and riders to plan for because weather can change at the last minute. But. You know, just for example, in terms of weather conditions, we've seen images of Andy Hamston riding over the snowy Gavia Pass in the 1988 Giro, or the torrential rain and dark conditions at this year's Vuelta a España prologue. The media and the fans are drawn to those epic race images, and, and I think they really glorify them. But ultimately, I'm always thinking about the athletes and how they're risking their health to ride in those conditions. I think the organizers and promoters who may have never raced bikes at the UCI level don't always understand all the nuances and risks and challenges of racing at that level and in inclement weather. So it's vital to have the voice of the racers heard to create a balance in the decision making. But in my opinion, the courses need to be appropriately safe, you know, in order to hold the race Ashley, you've raced for many years, and as a racer, what do you believe are basic human rights in terms of racing conditions?
2: Yeah, it's a good one to say what are human
0: rights. I mean, at the end of the day, none of us
2: actually have to start. I think this is part of the problem, is that we become so accustomed to having to push ourselves, having to go, you know, into the red. You know, that's part of our sport, that sometimes it's difficult for us to find the line. You know, so even me talking to you right now, I say, I'm not particularly good at finding that line because you become so accustomed to it. You know, like the level we're riding at these these days and the way we have to dig so deep and go so far into the red to win races. Like, yeah, is that really normal? I don't really know. Um, to be honest, I think sometimes it's our own fault that we don't know how to to find that line. And that's why it's really important that the people that are put in the position as representatives of the peloton are able <laughs> to, to find that line and to be more rational about it. Because I think that often we don't necessarily have the full, you know, rational approach as a bike racer.
0: I mean, I remember when I raced, I I was wanting to be focused on on winning and, and putting all my energy and focus into that. You almost don't want to divert your attention to anything else, right? Leading into an event.
2: Yeah, you don't want to admit even to yourself. Like I'm, I'm particularly bad at this like even if it comes to my health like I've just been racing at the Tour of Romandy where for sure I'm probably suffering from from burnout or chronic fatigue and my heart rate just would not come up and it was it was quite scaringly low but I still continued to race. I didn't have to race I could have stopped but I still did it you know what I mean and actually I think yeah it's a whole mentality that possibly needs to start changing but then how do we find that line because, if you've already admitted in your mind beforehand that the conditions are going to be unideal or that you're not going to be able to cope, then you've already given up, you know? So we basically condition not to think about those things or to, to not focus on those things because then you've potentially already given up because the mind is such a big part of, of our performances. So that's what I find quite difficult.
0: Yeah, I think honestly, like that ability to compartmentalize and narrow your focus is part of what makes you a great bike racer, but it can also put you in dangerous situations. And I think as a as a bike racer, we all assume a certain level of risk. And like you said before, finding that, that line of when it's too much can be challenging. You know, it's often not until after that you say, oh, I shouldn't have gone down that icy descent or, you know. <laughs> but yeah, it's tricky. There's a lot
2: more focus going into it now, which is, is really great for us. So I know that like Michael Rogers, for sure, within the UCI is taking safety really, really seriously. And there's a lot of work. Like I am also involved in the UCI Road Commission. So, you know, I'm involved in calls where safety is always brought up. Um, it's always discussed. And so they are really active. They are really trying to finding a neutral body or a, a means to make sure that like races are kept accountable, that routes are being checked in advance. And that's kind of a neutral force or a neutral body can kind of take care of those important decisions because it's quite hard when it's put on the riders or the teams or the race organizers because they're not neutral. You know, they have certain yeah you know, livelihoods or or revenue streams or that they're responsible for. So um, it's difficult often to sort of take the middle ground and and look at it from all the different perspectives. So it's definitely something that I know for sure is being taken a lot more seriously these days. The best solution or the, the model, the best model to be used hasn't yet been fully you know recognized or found or implemented, but lots of steps have been taken. Like if we even just look at some of the steps that have been taken to make the barriers um, safer these days, you know, all these types of things. And then the CPA, I mean, the CPA, I have to say, is playing a crucial role. And I do feel they're taking it very seriously. I mean, also, it's great to have someone like Adam involved because for sure, he's also taking it really seriously. And it's good to have past racers involved in these positions because they understand firsthand, you know, what it feels like or, or what the pressures or the responsibilities that we have as riders so a lot of steps are being taken but it's not a hundred percent solved for at this point in time but i do feel
0: that we are being heard as riders yeah it's good to hear that things are moving in the right direction adam and looking at some of the weather related issues that the racers have faced at events what are your thoughts on how the uci cpa athletes and teams could improve things going forward in terms of weather protocol
1: We'll start with the, the Velta. So I saw the start times of the Velta and I was like, wow, that's late. Okay. And then um spoke to the organizer and he said that it's been like this traditionally and they have the, the winner on the on the podium at the end of the news and that, that was the, the objective of it. And I was like, okay. But no one no one complained. No writer, no team, no one came to me. No journalists. I had a few journalists that that said afterwards, Oh, but you know, I saw I was like, Well, why didn't you write? If you were to the first person to write a story, if you knew it, if you would have wrote a story, you would have been the first person. So even the journalist missed it and everything. And actually the organisers did notice the, the storms and they actually changed the starting time. I think it was 15 minutes earlier than planned. But the storms were much worse than it was and then um, it was really the cloud cover that made the, the big difference. And because of that, I heard from the organiser that they couldn't get the streetlights on in time because this was a, a nightmare. And then I had some people, I had one journalist, why didn't the CPA do something like that? I was like, what can the CPA do? Like, I'm really disappointed in the sense of, like, when something like that happens, you're in the middle of the race. So at the the race starts, the race has started. And it's not a road race where everyone is together. So you've already got, let's say, five teams have finished. How are you going to tell a team you cannot start, don't start because it's not safe, And the commissaire and the organiser, well, if you don't start, then you basically don't finish and you you forfeit the race. So the CPA almost has no power in the sense. This is more up to the UCI and the organiser. And I'm really disappointed that not one of them sort of went, okay, this is is getting a bit too far, especially towards the end of the the teams where they did not step in. I understand it's very hard for not just the CPA, but the teams also, for the teams to stand and say, no, this is too dangerous. And then the organiser says, well, if you don't start, then you're out of the results. That's it. And people have to remember, teams go, I think, three or five minutes apart. You've got five minutes to make those negotiations and have it in place. And you've got to be sure that that commissaire has the power to enforce it and the organisers there. So this is something that um, in, in the SafeR group we brought up where we must have more power in these type of moments. And the UCI and the organizer must take some responsibility and do something. And this is out of the the team's hands. In that sense, it's out of the team's hands and out of the writer's hands. So, in that aspect, this was horrible. Regarding the extreme weather protocol, this is this is way too broad. The conditions to invoke it. Um, and I learnt this in the Giro. So we in stage ten in the Giro this year, it was horrible weather, and it was super cold. But it wasn't snowing or anything and what people fail to remember in these stages and and i'm sure you know this happens when there's a super bad weather day there's just riders everywhere there's no real peloton on the mountain days they're just they're just scattered everywhere and the team cars can't get to everyone they just can't so you have riders with not with the proper clothing and then they get wet and they can't get better clothing because there's, there's only two team cars And you had, I think there was like uh, 10 people in the breakaway. So you got 10 cars up the road. They can't go back um, and service all the riders. So there was a lot of riders that not serviced and it was just a disaster. And I negotiated with the organizer the morning of the race. And he said it was too late. You can't do anything. The race has got to go on. The riders can't control, you know, everything. And then stage 13 was looking bad. So we followed the rules of the organizer. We wanted to (laughs) do it the day before and we did a voting the day before and, Conditions were worse on that day, predicted. And then um, we did a voting and the, the riders, I think it was 19, wanted to invoke the Extreme Weather Protocol because there was meant to be snow on one of the descents. And then um, when we're talking to the uh, the organiser, they were against it. Everyone agreed that whatever the voting was, everyone had to agree to it. So even if we were against it, you had to agree to it. Everyone voted that. And that was true power of the riders. That was really good to see. And we informed the organiser in the morning they followed through. And the sad thing that happened in my eyes was it actually turned out to be not such a bad day. The organizer, was like, see, told you. I was like, yeah, but this is not my fault. This is your fault. Because on stage 10, we want to do the morning. And you said, no, nah, can't do it. The morning's too late. You got to do it the day before, where the weather's less predictable the day before. And then we did it the day before. And then he got angry that we did it the day before and not the day, the morning of the race. And that's how the organizer plays games with you in the sense. And also to invoke it was a bit difficult because there wasn't snow, it wasn't super cold. But the thing is, we know if it's raining and it's four degrees and you're out there for four hours or, or six hours, it is your body core just gets lower, lower, lower. Then it gets um, yeah, it just it's not healthy for the riders.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I'm actually a believer that the teams and the riders should take a greater role when these conditions are changing so quickly. Like in the Vuelta, I watched the live coverage and I found myself wondering why the teams didn't protest the start, those final teams, right? And just refused to start because it, it looked like a dangerous situation to me.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And it's, it's, this is what I mean. It's more, it's more up to the team. Well, in my opinion, for that to work, you'd have to get three or four teams at one time and this is mid race. This is why it's so difficult. You know, mid race and say we're not starting, and the, and all you need, and some of the organisers, like, I have to admit, some of them are pretty bad. Some are just like, okay, go home. It's all right. And that's day one of the VELTA, You know, that's it's a huge risk for some of these teams. So this is why I'm a bit disappointed. In the UCI and the um, the organisers not stepping up. But you're right. Next should be the teams and the riders. 'Cause even inside the teams, we you know, we don't always get and this is sad for me a little, we don't always get all the writers agree. And I don't mean it's sad for me in the sense that they all don't agree. It's sad for me that some writers want to race and the majority tell them that they can't. This is an awful situation I don't like and this is why I think it should be sometimes a bit above the riders and it's not just not to race, it's to be responsible. That's all we ask for.
3: Yeah, it makes sense think to create that strong collective united voice it's so hard because you have so many individuals with different interests and different motives
1: oh it's a nightmare because they're all not in one room generally the morning of a race they're all scattered across 22 team buses and it could be uh, a stage where the finish is in the hometown of a team sponsor or or it's someone's birthday or someone lives there and knows the roads and when you ask me what are my uh, long-term goals, is to also have a system in place where all the riders agree that if, like exactly what we had in the Giro, and the Giro the the ruling was, does everyone agree? If eighty percent felt for one thing, more than eighty-one percent, everyone follows. So if it's seventy-five percent, you do whatever the race is told to do. But if it's more than eighty percent, the twenty percent must follow the eighty percent. And and I tried to express in the sense, yeah, it might not go your way tomorrow, but your career is (laughs) long and it will go your way in the future. And that's why we do need to be united. And this is very important for your your health and long-term for cycling.
3: Also, it just seems like this kind of goes along with that idea of standardizing the elements. And that seems to me a a very important first step in moving forward.
1: Yes, definitely. It sounds easy. (laughs) but um, Every organizer is from a different country with different culture and Different budgets, then, but yeah, we definitely need this standardisation. This is something that we have to um, convince UCI to implement.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to circle back. You know, you talked about the writer's responsibility in mitigating the risk and, and the education and. I have like GCN streaming all day and listening to these races. So you you hear the commentators more and more saying that the number of crashes in the Peloton are growing and they're more traumatic. And I've often wondered if the devices and all the data that's now available for riders to be viewing on those those head units could be contributing to crashes. Because I think about, like you're talking about the speeds that the riders are riding and then you're looking down, seeing what's coming next. It's almost like, Texting and riding, where you know, and then all of a sudden somebody's breaking and then it just toys with reaction skills. Do you think that could be a contributor to the number of crashes?
1: To be honest, I don't know because I never raced with a Garmin, and I, I raced with uh, other guys that had Garmins, and it's true they they did look at the Garmins. And I like, I just for example, I remember being in the Giro, and I was climbing, and I was just about to, I was it was too hard for me, I was about to swing off, and this guy's like, hey, no. 500 meters is downhill and he was pointing at his garment and that's information that he had that I didn't have because I knew the climb was another eight kilometers to the top but there was a downhill section right so you know you make a good point there's this information that the riders are using to hold on longer because they do show (laughs) they do show the corners but they don't show how hard the corners are but you know maybe if they read it wrong or yeah it would not surprise me if it does well it definitely influences the way the riders race and I saw that firsthand where I did not have information, somebody did, and he used it to his advantage. But sometimes, when you have too much information and you have too much confidence, these two things don't go well together.
3: The other thing I've been wondering about is when these crashes are termed traumatic. You know, I was, I was watching a uh, documentary about like the Le Monde era and Eno era, and the the physiques of the riders are just so different. And how now they're just seems like riders are on the absolute edge in terms of of their weight and. Perhaps like when they're crashing, it's more traumatic because you know maybe the bone health is lacking, um, among other things.
1: Yeah, it's a very good point because today riders right, are uh, as lean as ever and 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 as light as ever. Well, what's a bit interesting is uh, Ghent University has been working with UCI to document um, crashes. I, I don't know how many years back, and what we're going to do is is to add in what type of crashes, so broken bones and things like that. And then one, <laughs> one person in safer was sort of like, yeah, but then we need to have protective gear and things like this. And I instantly thought, really? You're going to put protective gear on riders? And then I quickly thought, I'm sure that's what someone said when they were going to introduce helmets. And <laughs> like, really, are going to ride with helmets on? And I was thinking, no, but maybe, yeah, maybe give it, you know, maybe the riders do need a bit of more protective gear or something. Yeah, for sure, there's going to be a huge uh, rebellion against it. But no one's complaining about helmets today. And when I watch the old races where they don't race with helmets, I I, I cannot imagine to do a sprint finish without a helmet. I couldn't imagine doing a cobble section without a helmet. And maybe it's different because I'm an Australian and and we grew up with a law that you had to wear helmets. When I ride a bike without a helmet, I don't feel good. I just I don't know, I just don't feel good because I've always worn a helmet. But, you know, I become used to wearing a helmet and to me it's just part of racing. So maybe once we get more data and and we see, you know, because this one individual pointed out, you know, if everyone's breaking their collarbones. Then maybe we should look at some protective gear that could reduce that. Just maybe a little bit of padding or something that could just um, reduce that. And I was just thinking, oh, wow, I don't think riders. Then I was like, oh no, that's true. You know, they they put they implemented helmets, and this is no problem. Everyone, bought along. So yeah, maybe maybe in the future something like this will happen.
0: It'd be interesting to look at bikes too, because uh, like the carbons become so thin walled to lighten up the bikes, both on the frames and on the cockpit components, for example, that. They're braking more easily now than they did in prior generations. If you think back to the 1980s and everyone was on steel, bikes took a greater part of the impact of a crash, and now they just snap immediately. They don't really take in any impact. And so I, I would think that the body would take more impact from the crash because of that. It would be an interesting thing to look at, right?
1: Oh, definitely. Um, you know, when you're saying that, I was thinking, you know, if the roads are perfect and you're in a perfect environment, it doesn't matter... If the bikes are fragile. But when you do a cobbled section or you hit a railway or you hit a gutter or something like that, you're right, they just <laughs> today's bikes just fold underneath the riders. There's so many more images today where mechanics are picking up three pieces of a bike to back to the car. But it's a very good point. I'd like to look into exactly what you said that if you were to hit something with a carbon bike and it folds, are you at a higher velocity than someone that's on a steel frame that hits something? Yeah, it'd be definitely interesting to look into.
0: Yeah. I can't imagine that it doesn't have an impact, right? That
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. oh, makes sense. Cars are designed to crimple, to reduce the speed.
0: Yeah. Adam, to wrap up the episode, we'd like to ask you for your top three pieces of advice for bike racers to improve safety in the peloton. So for the riders.
1: Just point out everything. If you see a pothole or a stone or something, point it out. That was one thing that I always did, just to point out everything. That's a huge one, actually. And stay within your limit. Really, really, really stay within your limit. You might get confident on one one downhill, but that's because you've done it a few times, but there's a lot of downhills you haven't. And last thing, I don't want to scare riders. I really don't want to scare riders. But just for one minute, go through a city and just look on the road of everywhere you can hit your head on. The gutter the concrete plant pot, the corner of a building, the sign. And you'll see in one minute, there's so many points of impact. And, and I think this is kind of good just to be self-aware because everyone thinks they're invincible. And that's the problem with athletes. When athletes are riding well, they think they're more invincible. But the thing is, you know, everyone's the same when they hit a concrete curve.
0: That's really good advice.
3: Yeah, great pieces of advice. It kind of brought up for me, Adam, when I was racing, like I wasn't fearful, but I was just proactive, like always thinking about exit strategies. Not
1: an exit strategy, but when I used to cross bridges, because, you know, on a bike, you sit really high. It's not like your car, you're sitting down. On a bike, you sit really high. Sometimes I'd look and go, like, if there was a crash here and you're on the side of the bunch, you could go over a bridge and it's a 100-meter drop. Like on bridges, I'd always be in the middle of the peloton. <laughs> <laughs> just, on, just on that little chance that if there was a crash and I and I went over the railing. Oh. oh,
3: little buffer. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> Ashley, do you have any final advice to share with our listeners?
3: I'd say,
2: like, I do believe that a form of skills – lessons, you know, or downhill lessons. I know that's becoming more and more um, common within pro cycling. A lot of the teams are implementing it, which is really great. But I think that if it's not being implemented within a team, then I'd say it is definitely something that riders should, should implement themselves. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's important to understand your equipment. It's important to know how far you, you can take your equipment. It's important to play around with those things, you know, tire pressures, to take responsibility for your own equipment. Because I think often our riders just just take for granted, oh, yeah, I'm just going to arrive and get on my bike and someone's pumped my tires. But What tire pressure do you want in these kind of conditions if it's wet, you know, so to take more ownership of understanding our bikes and, you know, how they should be dialed in, you know, for different conditions, especially in terms of tire pressures and um, and stuff like that. So I'd say it's important to understand those things and not just to take it for granted. And the only way to understand that is to pay attention to it in training, to try things out yourself, obviously, within reason, (laughs) don't take too many risks. Yeah, and then I suppose... Yeah, interesting thing is it's so funny these days how there's not as much sort of pecking order (laughs) within the peloton these days. You know, the youngsters just come in and they want to get to the top as soon as possible or there is less respect or whatever in the peloton. I, I really do feel this. So I feel it's not winning at all costs. We shouldn't be thinking that way. You know, we should be thinking about, you know, safety and don't take a gap that doesn't exist and ride more responsibly within the peloton. Um, and then I don't know if you have a concern to stand up for it, to speak up, don't feel afraid. You know, you can voice your concerns. If you don't feel comfortable, say it because actually surprisingly, there might be a whole lot of others that don't feel comfortable too, but everyone's feeling nervous to say something. So, you know, voice your opinion, say how you feel. If you're in the peloton and you're not feeling safe for various reasons, go up to another ride and say, Hey, a rider that you trust, you know, or an older rider that you respect and say, hey, I'm feeling unsafe. Do you think this is safe? You know, and then that might kind of get things rolling where everyone's like, no, hang on. I'm also not feeling good. What should we do? Okay, let's neutralize the race. We have a right to speak up and to stand up for ourselves and to say when we feel uncomfortable.
0: That's really good advice. Thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk Fan. Subscribe to Fast Talk Femme wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk Femme are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback and any thoughts you have on topics or guests that might be of interest for you. Get in touch via social. You can find Fast Talk Labs on Twitter and Instagram at Fast Talk Labs, where you'll also find all of our episodes. You can also check them out on the web at FastTalkLabs.com. For Ashley Molman Pazio, Adam Hansen, and Julie Young. I'm Dee Dee Berry. Thank you for listening.